Hi, and welcome to Kol Drachaha, your podcast for everything women and mitzvot from drachaha.org. I'm your host, Rachel Weber Leshaw, and today I'm here with Dr. Yael Ziegler to talk about her career teaching Torah and her new book on Eicha. Dr. Ziegler is a senior lecturer in Tanakh at Herzog College in Matan. She received her BA from Stern College and an MA and PhD at Bar-Ilan University. Dr. Ziegler is the author of Promises to Keep, The Oath in Biblical Narrative, Ruth from Alienation to Monarchy, and the recently released Lamentations, Faith in a Turbulent World. This coming year, she will begin a new role as the Rosh Beit Midrash at Matan. She lives in Alon Shvut, Israel with her husband and their five children. Dr. Ziegler, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, let's start from the beginning. Can you share um, a little bit of the background, how you became a lecturer and writer in the field of Tanakh? And specifically, did you always know that this was a field you wanted to go into? Yeah, um, no, I did not. Um, when I was young, I always wanted to be a lawyer. That was because I think my favorite uncle was a lawyer. So that's the way you make decisions when you're you know, at a young age. Um, and, um, my, my career path really did initially go in the direction of law. I studied at, um, at Stern, I studied political science, um, but I ended up with a, a second major unintentionally, and that was in Judaic studies. And so I began to get a sense that that was where my real interests, uh, were, were going. Uh, when I did come to Israel for the year, I decided before, not for the year, but I came to Israel after Stern College, I decided that I was going to take off a year before I went to law school. And that was here at Matan. And so once, you know, I started learning at Matan, um, I actually had a friend, uh, Joy Rachwager, who unfortunately passed away quite young. And she was teaching at Midrash at Moriah and at another small Shana'al school called Shayara. And she went, she went on vacation or she, she had to travel and she was absolutely determined to get me into a classroom. She had this kind of intuitive sense that uh, I should be teaching. And so she said, you have to substitute for me. I said, I can't substitute. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to be a teacher. And um, that was a life-changing experience for me. I, I, I agreed to substitute. I began uh, teaching. I mean, I wasn't planning to teach. I was just doing her a favor. And in, in the end, it was, it was a big favor that she did for me. And that really did uh, change. I mean, you know, was sometimes people's career path is very gradual. And sometimes I think you have this kind of revelatory experience, which was what happened to me. I, I walked into a classroom. I experienced what it was like to, to, to teach Torah, to learn Torah in that kind of setting. And for me, there was really no turning back and, and law school never happened, but other wonderful things did. And so did you know immediately that you wanted to go uh, towards academia from there to do a master's and eventually a PhD and eventually lecturing? Well, that, that's an interesting question. I don't know if I would call myself in academia. <laughs> I sort of made a conscious decision that even though I wanted to be trained in academia for all sorts of reasons, not the least of which was that there wasn't really a clear path for women to uh, continue uh, learning and 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 moving forward in 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 their own uh, kind of educational experience, um, and and because I thought that academia had a certain rigor and methodology that I was looking for, um, but I chose very deliberately not to pursue 
a, a clear academic path. I, I, I was and am still more interested in, in being in a Torah institution, um, one that is looking not so much to appeal to the head, but to appeal to the heart, which, which I think it maybe is the difference between being in an academic setting and being in a, in a Torah setting. Um, while, uh, of course, using some of the methodology that academia has to offer, and that I, I believe in very strongly. So, you know, one of the things that I talk about, certainly in my root book, but perhaps more implement in my, in my Echa book, is this um, kind of blending of, of two aspects of my world and my educational um, experiences, and that is to use the rigor and the methodology of academia, and to try to use it to um, to encourage and facilitate greater love for Torah. It's like you knew that that was going to be my next question, which was the balance between those two things. Um, but I guess the follow up is: is that something that you're hoping to do in your new role at Matan, bringing? sort of the rigor of academia and the the heart of the baby drash. Yeah, well, you know, I don't think that I have to do that at Matan because that's what Matan there. does and it, and it does it so beautifully. And Matan has, you know, built up such an incredible both, you know, reputation and staff and branches and has spread Torah so successfully over the past 30 years that, you know, that's not something that I don't, I don't think that, you know, I have to introduce that to Matan. And, um, you know, hopefully there'll be many um, opportunities to use Matan as a platform for spreading Torah, for spreading love of Torah over, you know, in the next period of Matan's, um, Matan's uh, gift to the world. But it's not, it's not going to be something new at Matan. This is something that Matan has very much been doing and I think very successfully. Absolutely. Um, one of the other things that they really have been at the front of is the the intellectual and rigorous Talmud Torah specifically for women. Now you've taught in both all female mixed and I assume at some point all, all male environments. Um, do you experience a difference when teaching um, to those different types of groups? You know, that's a good question. I'm I don't know. That's that's the true answer is that I don't know. One thing that I do feel and, and I feel it even in my teaching here in Matan is that, um, you know, one of the, 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 the important ways to promote women's learning is 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 just to teach to teach everybody and not just women. And the question is whether or not I experience something different when I'm teaching just women or when I'm teaching mixed groups or when I'm teaching just men, which I do in Herzog College, you know, where I, the, 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 the uh, genders are separate and I do teach the men and I teach the women. I, I'm not sure whether or not I have a, a good answer to that question, but I do know that here at Matan as well, some of my classes have, you know, um, uh, women come with their husbands. And that also, I think, is part of what Matan has been successful at doing. I mean, it certainly is trying to create an environment in which women can learn at a very high level. That's been its most important goal. But as a secondary goal, one that is also promoting uh, women's learning, you know, men are also able to be part of an environment in which women are really able to spread their Torah and their ideas and, uh, and that's something that I think the Jewish world is ready for. And that's something that I think the Jewish world is, is also gaining from. 
Absolutely. If, if women are teaching good Torah, at some point it becomes silly to close the men out from those opportunities, right? So I'd love to, to talk a bit about um, your new book on Eicha. I'm going to read a little bit of, of the blurb. Um, it's out from uh, Magi with Koran Publications. Um, okay. How do people progress from despair to hope? How does one maintain faith in God's justice in a world that seems cruel and unfair? What is the nature of Israel's culpability? And to what degree does sinfulness factor in Israel's calamities? What is the nation's relationship to its land, to Jerusalem, and to the outside world? Artfully combining traditional and academic scholarship, Dr. Yael Ziegler weaves together close readings of the Book of Lamentations, Eicha, with an integrated reading of each chapter and examinations of larger themes. To the reader's surprise, Lamentations emerges as a coherent discourse on the way that people, as individuals and as nations, contend with adversity. So we'll start from the beginning. Why write a book about Eicha? What, what drew you to this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, you know, I think that Eicha is a book that contends with one of the most important, unfortunately, um, aspects of, of, of humanness. Um, in, in a sense, it's a very universal book, just in the sense that it gives people the opportunity and, and the tools and the context to cope with difficulties, um, with adversity, both on an individual scale and on a national scale. And this is something which I think, you know, whether or not it's, it's something that, you know, uh, uh, at what point in life we appreciate this or we experience this, you know, hopefully it's much later in life. At some point, everybody contends with loss. Everyone contends with death. And, and you know, even uh, certainly, you know, some of the events that we see going around us today, whether it's the past year and a half experience with Corona or, you know, the recent collapse of the building in, in Surfside in Miami, right? we are as a community and, and as just you know, as humanity, not even just the Jewish community, certainly the Jewish community has had its share of uh, specific calamities in recent history and in distant history. And, you know, those are some of the things that we're thinking about during this period of the three weeks, Shiva Serbatamu's yesterday, Tisha B'Av coming up, uh, you know, that, that we as a people have experienced an inordinate amount of tragedy. Um, but, you know, on all of these levels, we are looking for tools and we require tools to contend with God um, and with each other, with, with, with what it means to be part of a community and as individuals, how we cope with calamity. And I think that Echa, without being a book that is um, you know, kind of a, 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 a treatise on theology, it's not, it's not a theological tre- treatise. It's, it's not like Eov in that sense. Um, but even though it's not, it's still a book that I think in many different ways weaves in the tools, the techniques, the coping mechanisms, and the um, ideas that enable us to cope with, with, with difficulties. And, and that, I think, is one of the reasons that I was committed to writing this book, even though, you know, it, it, was, a, it was quite a project. It was quite a project because it dealt with very, very difficult um, ideas and very difficult experiences. Some of the disturbing images in the book are just, you know, terrible and, and really, you know, leave you um, kind of throughout the day experiencing them, especially as I was writing about them. And yet I was, I was really committed to this project because I thought that it could be a very important tool, a very helpful tool for, for, for people. Wow. Um, 
you talked about tools and techniques for coping. Um, I want to talk about tools and techniques you use in your work, as you've spoken about already. Um, and as you're very well known for, you use a lot of um, the literary approach to Tanakh, close analysis of text and, and all of those, all of those tools. Um, how do you balance using those tools and reading closely um, with a religious approach to the text that, that sees God in text and relates to humanity, not just, you know, this is the root of that word and this is a parallelism in the verse. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would never just show something beautiful, something that is just about its literary artistry. My, you know, so many times I've, I've encountered uh, a scholar who's, who's writing about a structure or a literary technique and then, you know, kind of leaves us hanging with, but what does that mean? Why is it, you know, why is it used in that way? What, what is its ultimate um, uh, you know, what is its ultimate goal? And, you know, I mean, no, I, I should say I should be more fair. A lot of scholars also take that next step. But I would say, you know, it, the next step is the more important step, right? Not just the beauty and the technique, but the meaning that it, it, that it, it, it causes and that it, you know, generates. And, and the other point that I'll make is, is that I feel very strongly that um, this is the way that Chazal were reading the Tanakh as well, right? Some of these, you know, certainly the intertextuality, certainly the close attention that is paid to, you know, syntax and words and deliberate word choice and weaving kind of roots throughout a particular uh, narrative piece. Um, so, you know, in my mind, what, what we're doing today, those of us who are engaged in these kinds of close readings and using this literary methodology, we're really continuing certain midrashic approaches. I mean, you know, the, the medieval Parshanim did something a little bit different, but I feel that the midrashim were often doing these kinds of readings of um, of Tanakh. And certainly also, I mean, you know, Echa is different than Root. When I work with Root, so I was working with a story which has you know, certain um, uh, you know, cert certain aspects of the story lend themselves to more literary readings. But I would say, you know, with Echa, it's poetry. And so when you're doing poetry, you have to talk about technique. You have to experience, you know, it, the, the, the sounds and the feel and the cadence and the... Um, the, the, the tone, the mournful tone, and some of the ways that language is used in order to convey the experience of reading poetry. And reading poetry is an experience. And, and therefore, you have to be kind of aware of how that experience is meant to impact upon your understanding of the book. Right. It's like trying to read Shakespeare as a book instead of performing it. If you want to get the real impact, you have to realize what form it was meant to take. I'll share something personal with you and, and with the group, which is a little bit funny. It's funny for me to have this conversation with you because I don't know how many years ago it was that you recorded a series on Eicha for the Gush podcast a, a number of years ago. And many years ago. Because eight, eight summers ago, um, I got married on Tubav. Um, so that Tishabov, I was very much not in the headspace of Tishabov at all. Um, and I was trying to figure out, like, what am I supposed to do? I'm getting married in three days. I'm very excited, but it's a morning day. What am I going to do? So I listened to your podcast recordings on Eicha, um, and I still have them in my memory as sort of what I listened to that 
that Tishabov um, and the the way you speak again consistently about the poetry and the meaning and needing to sort of talk out the beauty of the ideas because they were meant to be you know approached that way um it's nice to sort of come back to those those same ideas which now you've expanded into into a whole book wow that's that's amazing that you remember that um you know i will say something else about the about the kind of you know you said it's hard when you're in a place of joy to experience Tisha B'Av and to experience Echa. And, um, you know, for me, I think one of the challenges of writing Echa, and you know, I sort of alluded to this before, there's something that a lot of people asked me about was, you know, being in, immersed in, when you're writing something, it's a very immersive experience. And when you're immersed in something which is quite difficult, as I said, it, it, it can impact on your, you know, kind of emotional place. I'm a very upbeat person. And I think, you know, for me, writing about Echa was a, there was a bit of a dissonant kind of experience. Um, one of the things that I really tried to do in Echa is while acknowledging the language of pain and the uh, painful elements of what being human is and what it means to be part of Jewish history, I, you know, and I think that that's challenging for everybody during this three-week period, not just if, you, if you're getting married the next week, but, but for everybody, I think that, you know, there's a challenge of, of trying to plug into that side of, of the human experience, because we would prefer that it be a, a, you know, a more marginal part of our experience. Um, but one of the things I did try to do is I tried to within the broader context of Tanakh, and within the broader context of Tanakh, one of the remarkable parts of the Tanakh is that it doesn't end after Yerushalayim is destroyed. And, and, and that's almost, you know, when you, when you think about it kind of objectively, I mean, we know that because we're, we're living to tell the tale. But when you think about that objectively, it's actually quite surprising. I mean, all of Tanakh, starting with, some might say, Avraham's journey to Canaan, I would even say starting with the Ganadin story, all of Tanakh is about getting to the land of Israel and building a, 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 a world, a spiritual world in the land of Israel in which God is ever present in our lives. And the story of Echa seems, seems to bring all of that to a crashing cataclysmic end. And so what I think is really extraordinary is that we have books that follow the book of Echa. We have books of Shivat Zion. We have Ezra Nechemiah. We have Chagai, Zechariah Malachi. We have some of the prophecies in uh, at the end of Yeshayahu, which are clearly talking about the period of Shivat Zion. We have Mizmorei Tehillim, which are talking about the period of Shivat Zion. And all of these um, chapters seem to be conversing with the book of Echa. And, and, and linguistically conversing with the book of Echa so that you have, you know, the book of Echa telling us all of these terrible events. And then you have these chapters in Tanakh, which say, okay, but now let's pick up the pieces and, and, and move forward and create a, a rebuilding. Mm-hmm. And I try to use a lot of those sukim in my study of the book so that we're looking ahead. So we're not just immersed in the Echa experience, but we're able to look ahead. And I think particularly uh, today in 2021, having written this book from Alon Shvut, you know, sitting in my study, 15 minutes south of Har Habayi. I mean, you know, as the crow flies. Without traffic. Right, exactly. With traffic today, we're at least an hour away from Har Habayi. But 
But even that, you know, it, it really does give you a different opportunity to reflect upon some of these difficult events. That's so interesting. So probably your reading of Eicha is different maybe than people who, who read it in times of, you know, more, more suffering and, and exile who maybe didn't have the, the same perspective that we're blessed to have. Um, yeah, definitely. I'll ask one, it's a big question, but I'll, I'll ask you, Bakhtana. Um, you talk about the story of Eicha. In your view, is there one overarching narrative of Eicha or are the Prakim separate identities that we should sort of look at on their own? Yeah, and this is a very important question, and certainly is an important academic question. I think it's an important question, uh, you know, theologically as well. Uh, does Echa have a progression? I mean, especially given the fact that Echa is made up of five chapters, which are clearly divided into chapters because the first four have alphabetic compositions, right? They have alphabetic structures, right? right? And so it's clear that we have five separate units, and how do they relate to one another? So, you know, again, there is a certain amount of debate about this within academic circles. Uh, in, in my mind, Echa is a composite whole, and it tells not a story, not a narrative. This is not, you know, this is not root. This is not um, a, a book which has any sort of uh, chronological or historical progression. But I believe it tells a theological story. And I think one of my most important uh, goals in my book is to tease out the theology of the book. As I mentioned before, this is not a book of theology. And so what do I mean by tease out the theology? I think that when you look at the structure of Echa, what you're going to find is is that Echa is what we call a chiastic structure. It's written in in a chiasm where you have these kind of circles where chapters one and five represent the peripheral circle of the book. And then chapters two and four have a more inner circle. And chapter three is the core of the book, which stands alone in its theological reflections. Now, if you look at this, you know, what I would call the the, the, the design of Echa, what you begin to see is that Echa is a, uh, is, is a, it's a theologically complex book. When it talks about how we are meant to relate to God, how we're meant to understand our relationship with God in the face of adversity, it, 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 it offers us different and kind of balanced, almost dialectical experiences, whereas chapters one and five are pretty clear about hadin, hadin, right? theodicy, uh, saying God must be justified. God is justified in all of his ways. It reflects a certain kind of pure faith, right? Chapters two and four are, are books of incomprehension. They're books, they're, they're chapters of incomprehension. They're chapters of almost outrage. They have some very disturbing accusations that are kind of, you know, flung towards God, right? Tavachta, velo chamalta, haragta, biyom apecha, right? You massacred God. You didn't have compassion. And this represents, I think, a certain kind of oscillation that is both a realistic and very, um, I think, beautiful reflection of how human beings contend with God in the face of adversity. On the one hand, we can't but 
try to um, cling to our pure and, and, and simple faith in God's world. Again, without that, the world is absurd. It's a world that we can't live in. On the other hand, we can't deny some of the incomprehension that accompanies us as we experience the world's tragedies, both on a mass scale and on a smaller scale, right? We can't deny that good things happen to bad people and that you know, things happen that don't seem to have rhyme or reason. Um, and so you know, that's the sort of um, tangled fluctuation of the human experience. And it's beautifully, I think, built into the weave of Echa. Um, and you know, I'll just say, I, I, won't, I won't go into this in great detail for lack of time and because you, know, you can also read the book, but, but you know, that right in the center of the book, at the core of the book, what you find I think is the core of the human experience, the core of what constitutes the secret of human resilience and not just human resilience, but what it means to be a religious person who contends with a world that doesn't always seem uh, understandable, right? We don't always understand the world around us. And what you find at that core is really remarkable because at the core, you find not just a grappling with, with God, with, with, with one's faith, that you would expect to find, right? And, and what you find is, is this really strong, deep inner um, faith, right? We find that human beings have the resource at the center of their beings to find faith in God. But even deeper at the most central place in Echa, I think you find faith in human beings. And that is what I think is really remarkable. That's the most central idea in Echa, this faith that human beings have the ability to find faith even in the midst of a turbulent world. That's what I called my book, Lamentations, Faith in a Turbulent World. And really, I think what you find at that most central place in Echa is, is this, this notion that, you know, I'll just read for you the last sentence of my book. As it turns out, calamity does not necessarily destroy one's convictions. Instead, it can enable one to discover them. The experience of adversity can foster faith in a turbulent world. And there's a double meaning to that. Faith within a turbulent world and faith in a turbulent world. You find that your faith grows in, in these kinds of experiences because suffering produces introspection and intro, introspection produces a more meaningful and purposeful life. Wow, I have pretty much nothing to, to follow up on. I was almost going to ask, like, what do you think should be a takeaway from the book? But you've, you've sort of given that to us, this idea that, you know, over, over the next couple of weeks, again, in the, in the lead up to Tisha B'Av, to, to do that introspection and to think about faith in, in people, humanity and, and our turbulent world to maybe to lighten, maybe to lighten up a little bit. I don't know if it's fair to ask you. Um, you can say no, but what are you working on next? <laughs> um, well, you know, I've been, I, I actually did have a sabbatical at the beginning, the first uh, semester of this year. And so sabbaticals are designed to enable teachers to write. And so I started writing on Safer Shmot, uh, sort of as a counterpart to Echa. I thought about writing on Yeshayahu as a counter, counterpoint to Echa. I think I sort of was looking for a book of redemption, a book of hope and consolation, as I said, I see Echa within its broader 
biblical canonical context. Um, and I decided, yeah, I went back and forth, should I write on Yeshayahu or Shemot? But I decided to maybe, you know, tackle the challenge of writing on Torah. It's a very big challenge, both because so much has been written on it and because, you know, it's a kind of a formidable experience. You know, it's challenging. Um, and so I, I did, I've been writing on, um, on Shemot. Um, and we'll see, hopefully, uh, I, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to continue writing on that in the coming years. All right. Well, good luck with that. As as you said, you've, you've tackled some like smaller books. I've I've joked when giving Shirim on Root that I find that your book on Root might be the highest words of book per words of Sefer Tanakh that I own in terms of the amount that you can find to write on something so small. So I don't know if you've planned, you know, four volumes of your book on Shmot, given that it's a much bigger piece of work, but I'm sure we'll all hugely benefit from it when that reaches um, stages of publication. And in the meantime, I look forward to hearing all the amazing things that are going on at Matan in the future. Um, and thank you so much for giving from your busy schedule to talk to me this morning. Thank you so much. It was so nice to talk to you.